Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the lead pastor here. We're thrilled that you're with us this morning. Uh, everybody, welcome. So good to see you online here. And if you're new with us, you're our guest. And uh, thank you for being with us today. If you'd like to let us know you're here, you can text the word welcome to that number on the screen, 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a, a little digital connect card you can fill out, tell us about yourself, and you'll get more info about the well. So thank you for, uh, for being with us here this morning. I'm digging the new music, by the way, that, that members of our band are writing here at the well. Matt and Jackie, Steve last week, and uh, it's just cool to see the creativity and um, something is happening. And, and we really appreciate that. So thank you all for sharing your gifts with us. So this is the last week of our series, Distressed, Living in an Age of American Anxiety. The Census Bureau monitors the stress levels and depression levels that Americans report. As of last month, 35% of Americans reported levels of anxiety that could be diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder. That's twice the percentage of Americans that said that six years ago. It was up five points since January alone. So we are living in one of the most anxious times in American history. If you feel like you are more anxious than usual, you're, you're probably right about that. If you don't feel anxious, teach us your ways. Everybody I know right now feels just stressed out and, and we know we have high anxiety levels. And so that's what we've been talking about in this series. And uh, today we're wrapping it up talking about anxiety about the future, the future in general, just feeling anxious about what could happen in our country or in your own life. Are you anxious about the future? Are you anxious about the presidential election? Are you anxious about where our country is headed? Are you anxious about your children's future? Are you anxious about your finances in, a, in a, an economy that has experienced a downturn related to COVID-19? Are you, are you uh, anxious about your own personal health and worried that you, know, you might get COVID and have a bad reaction to it? Maybe you have an underlying condition. Are, are you anxious about the future? Family members getting along. Are you, are you feeling anxiety about the future? Uh, the comedian Jim Gaffigan this past week, is, you know, is known, he's known for being a clean, devout Catholic comedian. And Jim Gaffigan was so upset about our current political situ uh, situation, he just kind of went on a tweet storm this past week and w was cursing in his tweets. When Jim Gaffigan is cursing, you know it's serious. And maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you're, you're just, you just feel like um, you're so stressed out and you feel so much anxiety, you just don't know how to let it out. You just don't know what to do to, to deal with the anxiety that you feel. We are living in one of the most precarious times in American history, and most of us are aware of that. Somebody asked recently about um, our drummer from the worship band, Eric Odger. And um, uh, you know, back when we met in person, Eric played drums every week in our worship band, and, and um, Eric is a Marine, actually. He spent several years in the Marines, and he and I talked recently, and about a month ago, he enlisted into the Army. And so he, uh, he sh you know, shipped off to, to training, and um, he and I talked about his decision before, before he left, and, and we talked about how the world is dangerous and we really don't know what's going to happen. And when somebody joins the military, obviously, you know, we can't see the future. 
and, and they know that they are walking towards danger. At least there's a realistic possibility of that. And Eric believes that that's part of his calling, that that's the best use of the gifts and the skills that God has given to him to, to re-enlist. And he knows the danger and he knows what he's walking into. And he believes that that's his calling and that, that, that that's something that he should give his life to. So Eric, I want to say I'm proud of you, man. And thank you for your service. That's the way that he dealt with anxiety about his future. Hey, I'm just going to walk into it because I believe this is what I can contribute. Some of us are feeling more anxiety about the future right now than we realize even. Some of us aren't getting the kind of sleep that we need. Some of us are eating and drinking too much. Uh, Some of us are just feeling on edge. Some of us are doom scrolling before we go to bed and just reading through all the horrible stories on Facebook and then we try to sleep. Um, Some of us are... Uh, experiencing relationships that are more on edge, maybe more bickering, maybe more irritability because we're, we're all cooped up and we're all just kind of on edge and, and, and worried. Maybe you're feeling the effects of the economic downturn and you're feeling financial anxiety. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in, in this series. Maybe that's you and, and it seems like there's nothing that, that just produces anxiety and stress in your life like being worried about finances. And, and maybe you're worried how it's going to turn out in the future. So today I want to talk about seeing the future rightly. To be able to see through the eyes of faith a view of the future that can reduce our anxiety not, and not just feeling better and feeling less anxious, but being empowered to make our future better. So that's where we're headed today. So my oldest son, who is nine now, really, uh, really likes science and math. He likes sharing factoids about scientific discoveries, and, and he, he's intellectually curious, and, and he likes to explore. And, and he, those are the kinds of conversations we have with him about those things. And when he was maybe four or five, uh, he was um, in his car seat. We were driving one day in, in the daytime, and, and uh, he was a little boy in his car seat in the back seat, and just randomly, out of nowhere, he asked me, Daddy, what would happen if the sun went out? Like four-year-olds do, being concerned about the, the sun burning out. Now, what would happen if the sun burned out? So a smart dad would have said something like, buddy, you don't have to worry about that. The sun's not going to burn out. That's what a smart dad would have said. That's not uh, what I said. I, being a nerd father like myself and wanting to rely on scientifically factual information, I shared with him, well, buddy, actually, um, someday the sun will burn out. I looked in the rearview mirror and his face just went blank. Poor kid. That is not what you say to a child who is wondering if the sun will go out. And so I tried to correct myself. I tried to say, well, actually the sun is a star and it's halfway through its life cycle. So like billions of years from now, it'll burn out. When you're digging yourself into a hole, just stop digging. I just kept digging. Adults can't conceive of billions of years, let alone a child. And, and, and so I tried to make it better. So I said, we'll all be dead before the sun burns out. Epic fail. That's just not what you say. Who has two thumbs and is the father of the year? This guy right here. So a couple of weeks later, he, he asked me, you know, 
what's going to happen when the sun burns out? And I figured, oh, this poor little guy has been worried for two weeks about the sun burning out billions of years from now. And I, I finally got it right. And I just said, buddy, the sun's not going to burn out. You don't have to worry about it. So I just lied. You don't have to worry about it, buddy. The sun's not going to burn out. Father of the year. We want to be able to see the future rightly. We, we want to be able to see the future in a way that we're not overcome with anxiety, even though there are things that should provoke us to action. We don't want to be overcome with anxiety. And we want to see the future rightly so we know how to live in the present moment. I want to read a couple of scriptures together. The first is, is uh, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Psalm 23. And then the next is a couple of verses from Matthew 6 that we read recently when we talked about financial anxiety. So let's read together. This is the 23rd Psalm, and this is a modern translation. So you may already know the, the old King James version by heart. Maybe this modern translation will kind of help bring things to, to new light. So Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The 23rd Psalm. And then from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Jesus says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Psalm 23 tells us that God is like a good shepherd. And, and in the Middle East, there are shepherds to this day, actually, um, who will lead a flock of sheep. And, and they lead them uh, from place to place where they can find grass for the sheep to eat. And, and sheep are not the greatest uh, people at figuring, or the greatest people. Sheep are not the greatest at calculating risk and seeing the future rightly and and calculating consequences and risk versus reward. And so sometimes there's a, a well-meaning sheep who will wander away. I don't know if you can see, this is, a, this is a bit of a cliff right here. There's a sheep who will wander away and they'll, they'll, they'll walk straight towards a cliff. They think there's something enticing there and they'll just walk right off the cliff. And a good shepherd who cares for the sheep and loves the sheep will guide them and care for them and make sure they don't stumble. Make sure they don't fall. Make sure that they don't get themselves into a dangerous situation that they would regret. And a good shepherd leads them towards food and towards water. And a good shepherd will even protect the sheep against threats. When a wolf sees a flock of sheep, 
that could be easily taken advantage of and approaches. A good shepherd will put himself or herself in harm's way between the sheep and the wolf and will even take on a wolf to protect their sheep. So God is like that, the psalm says. God is a good shepherd who leads us and, and, and guides us and protects us and we're not alone. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to worry about the future because God is a good shepherd. God is good. Because of that, we can have a better future than what we're experiencing right now. All the days of my life. Because God is good, we can have a better future. Now, the world seems pretty dark right now. I believe that we are at a crisis moment in the United States. I believe that, that this is an emergency. The situation that we find ourselves in does demand action. There is no pie, you know, pie in the sky um, platitude that's going to make our situation better. I believe this is a crisis moment. And as we realize that it is a crisis moment and that things are pretty dark right now, we want to make sure that we see the future rightly and that we don't fall into the same trap that so many other people have fallen into. The same way of viewing the world that so many Christians have fallen into. And maybe some of you wonder, you know, why is it that so many Christian people can be so easily conned? Why is it that so many Christian people, it seems like they, they're just following ideas and people that don't look like Jesus. How, how is it that, that Christian people could wander away and just walk off a cliff? Well, it has to do with the way we view the world and the future. There is a view in American Christianity that, that arose after the Civil War, and it's called, and get ready for a million-dollar theological word, premillennial dispensationalism. That's the word for today, folks. Premillennial dispensationalism. It's a view of the book of Revelation, the view of, a view of the end times uh, in, in the Bible. And, and it's, a, it's a fancy word that just means this, essentially. The world just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus comes. The world just gets progressively more violent. And there's carnage in the streets and... and, and um, things that are alarming, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then finally, Jesus comes to save us. That's the most popular view of the end times in American Christianity today. It's an apocalyptic worldview that is pessimistic, that is fatalistic, that actually sees things falling apart and going badly and just assumes they're going to get worse, that we can't do anything to make the future better because there's this view that's just so pervasive. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse and then Jesus is going to save us. Can you see how having a view of the future like that, the things just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and then we need a savior to come and bail us out because things are getting so bad, make you susceptible to a con. Can you see how that view of the world 
that things are just gonna get worse and worse and worse, and then I need a savior to, to, because things are just so bad. There's only one person who can bail us out now. Can you see how that view of the future leaves you open, susceptible to a con man who comes along and says, oh, I'm the chosen one. I alone can save you. Put your trust in me. And I'm the only one who can get you out of this mess because things are just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And I'm the Messiah. Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. Don't follow them. But can you see how that view of the world leaves people open to being conned like that? And in, in our time, when the world does feel pretty dark right now, it's very tempting for us to believe that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and we can't do anything to make the future better. We don't want to fall in to that same view in the world. The Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker is, is known for his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he argues that humans are actually becoming less violent and the world is actually getting better. He gave a TED Talk uh, in 2007 about the book, and then he's done at least two TED Talks since as a follow-up. And, and this is Peter Singer's review of Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. He writes, the central thesis of better angels is that our era is less violent, less cruel, and more peaceful than any previous period of human history. The decline in violence holds for violence in the family, in neighborhoods, between tribes, and between states. And then Pinker wrote a follow-up last year called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And he doubled down on his belief that the world is actually getting better. He cites statistically that global poverty is on the decline. Violence from terrorism, war, and homicide is on the decline around the world. Life expectancy is rising around the world. He states one of our downfalls is that, that humans have a bias toward negativity. When we see something we're afraid of, we, we tend to, to respond, uh, to, to overcorrect. Like when you're steering and you kind of go this way, we tend to overcorrect. We blow f- things out of proportion. And, and we're just too pessimistic and too fearful about the future. And because of that, progress just marches on unnoticed and it's taken for granted. Now, let's be honest. That sounds completely tone deaf right now. You're like, Ryan, where are you going with this? Because it doesn't feel like the world is getting better. That's not what it feels like right now. Once again, I believe we're in a crisis moment. We need to act right now. We're in an emergency. We need to act right now. And we don't want to fall into the same trap that has caused so many Christian people to be gullible and to be conned because they believe that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then somebody's going to come along and save them. We don't want to fall into that same trap of pessimism. Steven Pinker says, by believing that the world is getting worse, we can make it so. Pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we're, look, if we're looking at the future of our country, 
pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're looking at your financial situation, I can't get a better job. I can't increase my skills. I can't go back to school. I just can't. I'm trapped. I can't do anything. P- pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're afraid that you can't make a relationship work and you're, you're anxious about the future of your marriage or that you'll be alone if you want to be with somebody. Not everybody does, and, but if you want to be and you just don't think you can make it happen, pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Pinker says, by believing that the world is getting worse, we make it so. There's this apocalyptic vision that so many Christians hold that causes them to be pessimistic about the future and susceptible to a con man, a false messiah who comes along and and promises that he'll save them. There are other views of Revelation and the end times and of the future in general. There are other views that Christians have held historically more than this one, actually. It's just that this is the dominant view in America since the 1800s. But there are other views. I want to show you a clip that's about three minutes long. And and it's from a sermon that I gave, actually, back in 2013, when I was talking about the future and, and being anxious about the future. And in this clip, I present one of the other views of the future and even the end times that is very different from this pessimistic view that the future just gets worse and worse and worse. And then we need a, you know, a savior to come and bail us out at that point. So this is from 2013. Let's watch this skinny guy with poofy hair talk about the future. One final chart. It's close to this, but a little bit different. It's called amillennialism. Amillennialism means no millennium. Ah just negates whatever's behind it. No millennium. This, I want you to look at this. Church age, Jesus died and rose. The point here is that it's not a literal thousand years, but it's a way of saying that Christ now reigns on the earth. Not completely, not fully, because there's, we still know, of course, there is so much evil on this planet and injustice on a daily basis. There's no doubt about that. But that Jesus is reigning more and more and more. Evil has been defeated at the cross and resurrection. And the world actually is getting better until the end. I want you to look at this chart and realize something. This is the dominant view of viewing Revelation and the end throughout Christian history. I know the Left Behind series sold 65 million copies. Nick Cage is going to be in a movie. Is it possible that not even Nick Cage has this right. Is it, is it possible? This is, this is the view that was held by the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin. If you've been around church for a while, if you know church history, these are some of the giants of Christianity. Later, John Wesley, St. Augustine, back in you know, four, the 400s, adopted this view. Truth is, right now, outside of America, this is still the dominant view. The world is actually going to get better and better and better, and then Jesus will come. Can you see the difference? I mean, it is night and day that we believe God is working in the world and, and God's bringing justice and righteousness through his people and the kingdom of God is coming, and, which means God's leadership. The kingdom means God's leadership. And, and we're actually getting more humane over time. And, and we can partner with God and, and Jesus' prayer is actually answered. And the world gets better and better and better. And then Jesus comes. It's an extremely optimistic. 
I thought it was so cool in those glasses. There is a different view. And that view was the dominant view throughout the history of Christianity, that the world does not just get progressively worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus comes. But that when Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus actually means that prayer. And that history doesn't look like this, that we just descend into a crash and burn. History looks more like this. There are ups and downs, but there is a general upward trajectory. As God's people follow the good shepherd and bring his kingdom and his righteousness, like we read about in Matthew 6, which means following God's leadership and doing what's right by everybody. And we follow the good shepherd and, and we, we can create the kind of world, the kind of reality, the kind of future that Jesus once created. We can follow the good shepherd to create that. And yes, there are peaks and valleys. And I would say we're certainly in a valley right now. But can you see how that is a much different view of the future than so many Christians hold? In John 10, we quoted part of this verse in this, in this series too. Jesus says, the thief or the bandit or the con man comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the fullest extent. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So as people who want to follow Jesus, yeah, we're like sheep following a shepherd. I talked about animal farm recently and, and calling yourself a sheep is not necessarily a good thing usually, but here Jesus is saying, I care for my followers. I lead them. I guide them. I point them in the right direction. I show them how to live. I show them how to create the kind of world they want to live in, the kind of community, that, even locally that we want to live in, the kind of home that you want to live in, the kind of situation in your family that you want to live in. I am the good shepherd and I lead my followers toward green pastures and toward better times, whatever it is you're anxious about in the future. And Jesus contrasts himself with the thief or the bandit in this passage. Now, a lot of people read the word thief and they assume it's Satan. Sometimes in, in the New Testament, the thief does uh, re refer to Satan, not in this chapter. In John 10, the, the context of John 10 is that uh, Jesus is contrasting himself with self-serving leaders who don't care about their followers. They only care about themselves. And Jesus goes on to talk about people who kind of look like a shepherd, but they're really a hired hand. And what he says is, Jesus says, a good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. He'll protect the sheep or she'll protect the sheep. She'll take on a wolf to protect her sheep. But a hired hand just runs away when threat comes because the hired hand doesn't really care about the sheep. He's just kind of there. He has the title, the look of being a shepherd, but he doesn't really care about the sheep. And when hard times come, when threats come, he doesn't care about protecting the sheep. He cares about protecting himself. Jesus contrasts himself with a, a self-serving leader who he calls a thief who comes to kill 
to steal and destroy. So we want to follow the good shepherd. Now, I want to recap something that I shared on, the, on week one of this series, but in a little bit different way. If you want to get more of this, then you can you could watch the, the first week of Distressed. But I kind of want to touch on it in a different way. I shared in week one that, that there was an essay written by Carlo M. Cipolla back in the 70s, and he, he was an economics professor, and, and he wrote this essay back in the 70s called The Five Laws of Human Stupidity. <laughs> and we don't use the word stupid in our household. We teach our boys, it's just not a nice word, it's too harsh. We don't call people that. So I'm going to use the biblical words wise and foolish. Instead of stupid, we're going to say foolish. And instead of intelligent like he does, we're going to say wise. Because even in Sapola's essay, this has nothing to do with IQ. You could have somebody with an IQ of 70 who is actually a wise person. You could have somebody who has the IQ of a genius. And that person could be foolish. So we're not talking about IQ. We're also not saying that everybody who disagrees with you is stupid. Because we're, we're all susceptible to believing our own press. And we, we all want to be learners, not cynics and closed to, to new information. But we all want to be uh, humble people who are open to new information and lifelong learners. But, but essentially what Sapola is saying here in his essay is that there are helpless people up in this quadrant. And these are people who let other people take advantage of them. They give other people what they want, but they don't get what they want. Because they believe they don't have power to do anything. They believe they're helpless. And then Sapola says over here, we have people who are wise, people he calls intelligent. These are people who live for a win-win. They get what they want and they help other people get what they want. So there's a give and take. There's a win-win with people who want to live wisely. And then down here, Sapola says a certain percentage of society are thieves. They're bandits. They're con men. And what a thief does, like Jesus said, they come to kill, steal, and destroy. A thief hurts other people to get what they want. They get what they want, but they don't care about other people's safety or protection or other people getting what they want. The thief just takes. The bandit just takes. The con man just takes. And then finally, over here, Sapola says there's a larger portion of society than you think who could be described as foolish. What foolish people do is they don't get what they want and they hurt other people. They're not thinking about the consequences of their actions. They're just doing stuff without thinking about whether it helps them or not or about whether it helps other people or not. They're just reacting in life. They're not thinking about a good response to whatever they encounter. They just foolishly do whatever they feel like doing in the moment. And they hurt themselves and they hurt other people. Sapola says that when thieves and bandits take advantage of foolish people and they take advantage of helpless people to the extent that the typical balance in a society gets out of whack and we allow bandits to be in positions of power and authority in our lives. And there is a, an increasing number of people who believe they're helpless. In Sapola's words, the country goes to hell. When we allow 
too many bandits, too many thieves, too many con men in places of authority, whether it's government authority, whether it's an authority in a company, whether it's any authority in your life, somebody who is taking advantage of you if, you, if you allow that person to have authority, well, they're going to take advantage of foolish people because foolish people don't know they're being conned. Foolish people can't see that. They'll foolishly follow a con man right off the cliff. But the issue is when there are too many people who think they're helpless in a society, they get conned too, but even if they see through the con, they don't believe they can do anything about it. So thieves ruin a country by stealing from foolish and helpless people. Thieves ruin a business by stealing from foolish and helpless people. There are people who are thieves and they can ruin a family because they're just takers and they just want what they want all the time. Thieves can ruin a marriage by just, by just stealing, by just taking and not giving anything. And so Sopola says the key is you're not, going to, you're not going to convince foolish people not to be fooled. I know that sounds really cynical, but Sopola says that's just, that's a fool's errand. It's just not an effective way of changing society or your family or changing your own future. Sopola says, here's how you change things. Here's how you make the future better, whether it's our country, whether it's your family, whether it's your own personal life, your financial stress, no matter, no matter what it is, your relationship. Here's how you make the future better. Wise people can convince helpless people that they're not helpless. And once those helpless people realize, wait a second, I can do something about this. I'm empowered. I'm not helpless here. I can do something about my life. I can, I can do something about my future. I can do something about our, the situation in our country. I can do something about my own personal stress about the future. I can do something here. Then helpless people move into the wise people category. And now there are enough people to call out the bandits and just say, we don't think so. We're not buying it. We know all these foolish people buy it, but we're not buying it. And they kick the bandits out of power. Whether it's your country, whether it's your company, whether it's your family, you make sure that the bandits don't have the power over your family. Wise people can convince helpless people that they're not helpless. And those people become more wise people. The helpless people become wise. And, and we can create a better future together. So the point is, wise people do something. If you believe we're in a crisis, that we're in an emergency, wise people do something. They take action. They're not helpless. They're like, wait a second. I can create the kind of future that I want to live in. We can create the kind of future that we want to live in. And so wise people march and protest and they post on social media and they speak up. They put a sign in their yard. They email their congresspeople. They stand up to bullies even in their own family. They stand up to bully bosses. They stick up for themselves. They vote. Wise people vote. And wise people realize, wait, I can do something to make my future better. I don't have to live overcome with anxiety about my future because I can do something. I can follow the good shepherd who is guiding me to green pastures. 
and besides, uh, beside quiet waters and, and, and leading me towards peace. And Jesus is there for me as the good shepherd. I can follow Jesus Christ who leads me to, to love and, and to, to bring God's kingdom, God's leadership and God's righteousness. And we can all decide that we're going to do what's right by everybody. I can create my future. I don't have to be crushed by anxiety. I can do something about it. I can make the future better if I just follow the shepherd. Now, when you do that, when you decide you want to live that way, you're not just a follower. You're just not a sheep following the shepherd. You become a leader. Because that is the kind of vision of the world and of the future that we all, most of us at least, the wise people, know we need. And you become a beacon of hope. You become somebody who inspires other people and influences other people. The most prominent leadership coaches that I'm familiar with define leadership as influence. If you have influence over anybody in your life, you are a leader. If, if you're a parent, and right now you probably feel like you know, you're not influencing your kids. If they're in online school or if they're teenagers, you're probably like, I don't have any influence over my kids. Well, you do. You're a leader in your children's lives. If you post something, whatever you stand for, if you say, you know what, I believe in a, that we can create a better future and I want to I view the future through my faith, and I'm following the Good Shepherd, and I, I believe that we can make the future better, friend, you become a leader. You're not just a follower. You're a leader. You're an influence on other people. Next week, we're starting uh, a new sermon series. You're not just a follower. You're a leader, as we view my bad production skills. We're starting a new sermon series called Leadership. And it's based on this premise that everybody is a leader. If you have any influence at all, and you will if you follow the Good Shepherd, that you're a leader. And we don't have to lay down and die as though we're helpless. We don't have to let thieves and bandits control our lives. You don't have to give in to pessimism. Sometimes, we can become thieves in our own lives. And we can steal our future away from ourselves. Psh, I, I, just, I couldn't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. I, there's just no way I could do that. There's just no way I could address this situation in my family. There's no way I could stand up to this person. There's no way I could, I could get a better job. There's no way I can get out of this financial situation. You don't want to be a thief in your own life and steal your own future. You are a leader who can partner with God, the Good Shepherd, to make the future better. Now, what could that look like? As a country, well, yeah, speaking up, getting involved, donating to causes you believe in, standing up, voting. What does it look like as an individual? Yeah, it looks like taking on the thieves even if that thief is the lie that you're believing about yourself. And it looks like following the good shepherd and deciding I can partner with God to create a better future. I think it looks like what the NBA players did this week. 
when they decided that, wait a second, we have power here. And starting with the Milwaukee Bucks and then the rest of the, the teams in the NBA playoffs and then Major League Baseball and the WNBA and Major League Soccer all decided, we're not playing today. We're not just going to keep entertaining the masses while our grievances, our concerns are not being addressed. The same concerns we've been facing since before the Civil War, racism and inequity and, and violence. No, we're just not going to continue like it's business as usual. We're going to stand up and we're going to do something. Because of that, NBA arenas now are going to be polling places in the election. And, and they made other demands. They stood up and said, we're not helpless. And they, they spoke out and they're changing things. I don't know, some of you are into sports, some of you aren't. The commentators on ESPN are talking about making the world better now. <laughs> commentators on ESPN that are used to just arguing about whether Tom Brady's the best quarterback of all time. Commentators on ESPN are speaking up for human rights and decency and a better future. That's where we are now. What would that look like for you? The, uh, the Ole Miss football team walked out of practice the other day and stood around a Confederate monument. Most of those guys, African-American, holding a sign protesting brutality and inequity. These, these college guys on a football team stood up. And then this past week on Friday, thousands of people converged on the Washington Mall, at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, on the 57th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Thousands of people, you can see people, that, all the way back to the Washington Monument, standing up and saying, wait a second, we're not helpless. We can make the future better. We can create the kind of future we want to live in. What would that look like for you, to move from the helpless category to the wise category, to follow the good shepherd? What would it look like for you to believe that God is good? And because of that, we can have a good future. And I can follow a good God who leads us towards greener pastures, leads us beside quiet waters. And I can follow Jesus, the good shepherd, who doesn't run away, who's not a con man, who runs away when trouble comes and just wants to take care of himself and leave his followers alone. We can follow the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and we can model his behavior and champion the things we believe in. What would it look like for you to partner with God and not be overwhelmed with anxiety about the future, but to partner with God to create a better future. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for what may be the most famous verse or famous passage in the Bible, the 23rd Psalm. And thank you that it takes on new meaning for us now. We're living in times that don't feel like green pastures, that don't feel like quiet waters. We're living in times that feel like they're dark and dangerous. But God, if we're willing to follow the Good Shepherd, we shall not want, we shall not be in need 
because you want to lead us towards greener pastures, towards quiet waters to give us peace and a better future. We want to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, who unlike a con man who runs away when the sheep are threatened, he, he stays right there and lays down his life for the sheep and protects his sheep from threats. We don't have to fear the future. And we know, God, when we decide to live that way, we're not just followers anymore. We become leaders. Because that's what the world needs. And when we have influence over people, we're leaders. And God, you are calling to people right now, good, decent people, all over this country, around the world, to stand up and believe that we're not helpless, to realize that we're not helpless, and we can create a better future. We can create the future that we want to live in. We thank you, God, for that empowerment that comes from following the Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.